Shalom Mishpocha. Shalom family. Mishpocha is a Hebrew word, means family. <laughs> We're the Mishpocha, the family with the Jewish heart, made up of Jewish and non-Jewish people. Where the middle wall of separation between Jew and Gentile, it's finally come down to form one new man. Getting ready, Mishpocha, to blow the grandest shofar, all the grandest trumpet in Zion. We want everyone, everywhere, to hear the good news. We want everyone, everywhere, to be red hot. For Jesus, if not now, when? As a matter of fact, my guest is Craig Hill, and I've had him uh, as a guest several times, uh, a Messianic vision. And uh, Craig said to me, Sid, if you don't have me release the information now as to what is going on in America, in particular in the economy, next year, I believe, will be too late. Do you really feel that way, Craig? I absolutely do, Sid. I think now is a very unique time in history. Of course, you know, people always think that, but I think we have a very unique time uh, right now in economic history. There are things that are taking place this year in 2012 that uh, have not taken place uh, for 70 or 80 years, longer than most of our lifetime and now is a short season of time to prepare for what will be coming. And if people don't understand what's happening now, I think they may miss it. And the thing that's so wonderful is you speak about secrets from the Bible that only the very elite have done over the centuries, over the history of the world. Uh, and if people follow these principles— Unless they get a supernatural result from these principles, I, I mean, uh, people that are in a mess, which is 99% of the people we're talking about financially uh, that we're talking to, uh, unless God performs a miracle using his principles, uh, they're going to be in a mess next year. Well, you know, I believe uh, a scripture that God gave me, Sid, a few years ago was the one from First uh, Chronicles twelve thirty two about the sons of Issachar. And it said, the sons of Issachar were men who had understanding of the times to know what Israel should do. And I thought, we are not supposed to be the ones who are blindsided. We're not supposed to be the ones who say, <clears throat> say as many people said in uh, 2008, well, who could have known? We're supposed to be the ones that have understanding of the times, that uh, understand from both principles in the Word of God as well as from the prophets and what we're hearing personally from the Lord, what is going on. But you're absolutely right. There are, there are cycles that we see in the Bible that I find many, many people are uh, really unaware of. I find that most people are uh, Greek thinkers, and, uh, you know, we have a, a Greek type of thinking, which is a linear thinking, just a straight line, which means most people think everything will continue on exactly the way it's been all their lifetime. Jewish people or Hebraic thinkers tend to think in cycles. And uh, we see all through the Bible there are cycles that take place, and people who understand cycles are always able to prepare for the next phase of the cycle. People who are linear thinkers that just think, well, what I've experienced economically for the last 50 years will just continue the same as it always has been, never prepare for the next cycle, and then when it happens, they're surprised miss it, oftentimes are hurt, lose money, lose their house, lose their finances, and then wonder what happened. 
Well, you know, as I'm looking over your material uh, and looking at what's going on just by reading the newspapers. Uh, last month, articles started to break that poverty in the USA will be the highest in 50 years next year. The highest in 50 years. Uh, what do you foresee happening in America next year? Well, what I see happening, Sid, God gave me a revelation uh, from Leviticus chapter 25 about the Jubilee. And, of course, Jubilee is a, not a new concept. We've heard that in, uh, you know, in teaching for years. A lot of people have uh, named their church Jubilee. Uh, people have uh, had conferences on Jubilee and a lot of teaching about that. But what I found is most people didn't actually read Leviticus 25 and see what it actually talks about. But what I began uh, discovering here oh, probably five or six years ago is uh, – I, I was reading through Leviticus 25 and thinking about Jubilee, and it says that three things happen there. I found that most people are only aware of two of the things that are talked about in Jubilee. But uh, the purpose of Jubilee was to eliminate debt. And uh, God, being real smart, understood that any time credit is made available in a society and you allow people to borrow money, uh, human nature dictates there's just a 100% chance that people will borrow more money than is possible to pay back. And lenders, because of greed, will lend money, that have, uh, lend money to people that have no business borrowing. As a result of that, in about 50 years of time, an economy will take on an unsustainable amount of debt. And God said, what you need to do, he said to Israel, is there needs to be a national debt purge every 50 years. Yeah, you know what that reminds me of? Uh, when they have forced fires, they actually, they're bad, but they accomplish good because they, they thin the forest so it'll be better. So you have to purge that which accumulates that's toxic, so to speak. You have to, to eliminate it. And so God commanded Israel to do that on a voluntary basis, just like the forest fires. He said, voluntarily, every 50 years, I want you to have a debt reset uh, where you eliminate all debt, all debt is forgiven, and the economy resets as you accumulate debt, and an economy accumulates inflation, or it inflates. It gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. You have capital creation through debt that occurs over uh, decades of time. And God said, every 50 years, you're to voluntarily purge this. And he said, three things will happen. He said, all debt is to be eliminated or canceled, all slaves are to go free, and everybody returns to their original property, or property returns to the original owner. And what I began to discover, Sid, is that if you don't have a voluntary debt purge mechanism in an economy, then you get to have an unplanned jubilee. And I've just noticed in history, there are unplanned jubilees that have happened in European history, happened here in North American history, about every 70 to 80 years. So if an economy refuses to have a planned voluntary jubilee, then you get to have an unplanned jubilee. And that's, not, uh, that's unfair uh, in the sense that a lot of people don't know it's coming. God said, the jubilee I want is to be fair. You proclaim it, you declare it, everybody knows when it is, nobody's surprised, nobody's blindsided. But yet, if you don't do that voluntarily, then an economy will have an unplanned jubilee. The last one we had was in the 1930s. And uh, 
Uh, how often are these unplanned? We, we know about the plan because the Bible is a formula. But how often are these unplanned uh, depressions or jubilees, as you put it? They, they happen about every 70 to 80 years. We had another one back in the 1850s, and it continued on with another, uh, another one in the 1870s that was a subsequent part of that one. But if you look through uh, European history, you will see these jubilees or, uh, or uh, debt reset purges about every 70 to 80 years in an economy, and it's just a natural cycle. You have about 70 to 80 years of inflation, and then you will have a deflationary cycle where, where you will purge all the inflation that occurred over 70 to 80 years in about five to six years' time. If people understand that and prepare for it, it can be one of the most exciting times of their life. Well, well let me ask you this. A lot of people are quoting uh, the wealth of the sinner is stored up for the righteous. If people understand these biblical principles, then what is known as the great wealth transfer will go into the hands of the righteous at these times. So it's maybe a bad time for the unrighteous, but it could be a great time for the righteous. Absolutely true. Absolutely true. But I think uh, a lot of people actually didn't find the biblical definitions regarding money of the righteous and the unrighteous. I just wanted to know what those were, because I understand that in Messiah, we are all made righteous through him. No question about that. But regarding money, what does the Bible say about the handling of money? Who is righteous? Who is unrighteous pertaining to uh, to uh, finances. And so I just plugged those two words into my uh, concordance in my computer because we know that Proverbs 13:22, the wealth of the wicked is stored up for the righteous. And Sid, I stumbled upon the most amazing thing that was shocking to me. I, I was just shocked, honestly, when I read this because uh, the first scripture I ran into was Psalm 37:21, And it, it just changed my perspective on this because it defines in one scripture verse who is the wicked and who is the righteous? And it says in Psalm 37:21, the wicked borrows and does not pay back, but the righteous is gracious and gives, or shows mercy and gives. And I thought, well, if we just plug those definitions into the Proverbs 13:22 scripture, it says, then the wealth of the one who is borrowed and does not pay back is stored up for the one who shows mercy and gives. And I thought, oh my goodness. There are uh, just millions of people that did not understand that, that they're thinking, I'm righteous because I'm in Messiah. And yes, certainly you are righteous in that way, but the way that you're handling money is opposite of what the Bible des describes as righteous, which is one who shows mercy and gives, as opposed to those who borrow and cannot pay back. Well, you know, Craig, I think what's so fabulous, you talk about the validity of uh, seed faith of sowing and reaping, yes. but you show why it doesn't work for most people. You stated that if 100 people were given $10,000 today, briefly, what would happen? Well, the statistic shows that if we gave 100 people 10000 today and we came back a year later to see what they had done, 80 of them would have nothing left. 16 would have 10,300 to 10,500 or about the amount that you'd have if you put the money in the bank and four of them would have multiplied that money to be to between 20,000 and 1 million and uh, so if we just look at arithmetic functions what we find is 80% of the people are real good at subtraction 16% of the people have learned a little something about addition 
only 4% have learned about multiplication. And so what we find that, uh, that is true is the 4% practice five secrets that I discovered in the Bible, and, and I wrote a book on that, Five Wealth Secrets 96% of Us Don't Know. And, uh, and these are simple things. You know, when people... I'll I, I tell you what, we're out of time right now, but Mishpocha, I want you to get this in the hands of every young person you know. I want this to get into your hands. Uh, these, these wealth principles, they come from the Bible and they work in a supernatural fashion. I want to get this into your hands. Eight CDs called God's Power to Get Wealth and the book, Five Wealth Secrets, 96% of us don't know, available for a gift of $45. Call our order-only line, 1-800-447-2697, 1-800-447-2697. Craig Hill and I were speaking about what is coming to the, not just the United States, the entire world next year. And what you can do to biblically, supernaturally prepare. And as a matter of fact, I wish, Craig Hill, I knew personally these five wealth secrets as a young man. I believe that every parent, every grandparent should teach this to their children, and they're going to change uh, the, the, the face of their, their heritage. They're going to change everything about them. For instance, the Bible talks about jubilees, and uh, you talked on yesterday's broadcast uh, that uh, if you don't do a jubilee, which is uh, everyone gets rid of all of their debt— it's it's uh, a disaster for society, and we don't do it. So about every 70, 80 years, there is a forced jubilee uh, where people, unfortunately, uh, they lose everything, most of the people, but not all of the people. And that's what you're talking about. Well, would you expound more on jubilee? Sure. Uh, Sid, what I think is critical for people to understand, the Bible said you're to declare the Jubilee so everybody knows about it. But if you don't have a Jubilee mechanism, uh, the three things that happen in Jubilee is all debt is canceled, all slaves go free, and all property reverts back to its original owner. And what happens is you have a reset mechanism on debt, which means an economy deflates back to the values it was many, many uh, years ago or many decades ago. And so I... But, but wait a second. Most people that are savvy in economics are actually saying... Now, historically, what you're saying is true. However, they're saying it will actually be a great inflation uh, because they have so much white paper and green ink in Washington, D.C., and the printing presses are going nonstop. Uh, What would you say to someone like that? Well, I don't know that we have time to completely go through that, but I'm absolutely convinced they're dead wrong. That is absolutely wrong. Uh, I don't believe we're going to see any inflation for a minimum of 10 years until the 2020s. And the reason is this. There is such an incredible amount of debt 
that that is uh, is being defaulted on. And if you look at what is capital creation and what is capital destruction, to make it real simple, if you put a thousand dollars in the bank, the bank doesn't keep your entire thousand dollars. They keep maybe six percent of it or sixty dollars. They lend out nine hundred and forty dollars, and then when that money comes back into the bank, they lend it again and again and again. And money is multiplied through the fractional reserve banking system when an economy is growing. What happens when you turn that around and go the other direction, and the people you lent that money to can no longer pay their debts? They default on it. The guy you lent the $940 to says, I can't pay. That money disappears into thin air just the way the money was created. And the consequence of that is that... uh, that uh, you are destroying capital uh, every on all the defaults on debt, and if we take that into the derivatives market, which most banks and investment houses have uh, have become involved in, it multiplies not just at ten or fifteen to one, but upwards of fifty to a hundred to one. And when that reverses and goes the other direction, and you destroy capital, you are destroying far more capital at a far more rapid rate than any amount of money that the government is putting into the economy just by way. Of, uh, of some numbers, probably the minimum amount of debt that is being destroyed in our present economy would be about $122 trillion. Since 2008, the government has printed, so to speak, or created about $3.5 trillion. So if you match the $3.5 trillion money creation against the $122 trillion that's being destroyed, it's a drop in a bucket. That's why I'm absolutely convinced we will not see inflation. We'll see deflation. Okay. So therefore, if someone is in debt when this is occurring, they, they'll end up losing their house and everything they own. And... Uh, uh, and those that are not in debt and have cash could probably buy wonderful things for pennies on the dollar. That's exactly right. Or if we, it, it's already started. It's happening right now, Sid. I think we entered into this current jubilee cycle in 2008. And for the first time in a long, long time in many, many cities across America, for example, the value of people's houses declined. Now, for all of my lifetime, I've known nothing but increase in housing values, you know, with short, short periods where the housing prices would decline. Uh, but by and large, people have always thought, well, the value of my house will always go up. It always has. I can look at 50 years of historical data, house prices, house values always go up. The problem is when you hit a jubilee cycle, you erase or eradicate 60 to 70 years of inflation in five to six years. The reason God said you're to proclaim this and declare when it is, is if you were to know in advance, Jubilee is starting 2008, and the value of your house is going to be cut in half or cut to a quarter, would you buy a house in 2007 or 2008? Well, of course not. But uh, many, many people didn't know that. And uh, so it becomes unfair, and people end up losing their house because they didn't realize the value of that house was going to go significantly down and stay down. And I believe it'll stay down for a long time. But now, what are you doing with your money? Because, uh, by the way, he doesn't just teach these principles. Uh, For the last 20 years, he's been in ministry, but... He's made money outside of ministry in uh, six figures for the last 20 years and invested that money. Uh, What do you do personally with your money? You've done well. 
But what are you going to do now, knowing what you know? Here's the first thing that, uh, I, as I traveled around and ministered in, in churches, Sid, in the, in the 2000s, 2001, 2, 3, 4, I would go to churches and I would ask, uh, has, has God spoken anything in this church about finances? And, uh, you know, have there been any prophetic words as your pastor preached about it? And consistently people would say, yes, get out of debt. And uh, I thought, isn't that interesting that uh, God prophetically put that word out through his body in uh, the early 2000s, get out of debt. And if people had heeded, look what they would have done, accomplished. Right. And, and so to answer your question, because I heard that word, I became very intense with God. Uh, Jan and I, my wife Jan, we began seeking God. Now, we had never uh, had any credit card debt. Uh, but we had a mortgage on our house, which we had had for most of our adult life. And so we prayed and said, God, we need to eradicate this because if you are saying get out of debt, we want to take that seriously, and this is debt, and we want to eliminate it. We don't know how. Father, if we just look at the income that we have and what's available and we apply our our money to our debt, it's going to take, uh, we just ran the numbers, about 10 years to get out of debt. So we began to press into God with an intensity, with a vision and a purpose and saying, God, you have said get out of debt. We are going to do this. And I said, it was supernatural. God put something across our path that, to make a long story short, ended up uh, with us eradicating the last $86,000 of our mortgage in about a year and a half. And so uh, uh, by the beginning of 2003, we had finished that. And, uh, and so the point would be this. You said, what am I doing with my money, knowing that we're in a jubilee cycle? It would be as though if somebody were to tell you in the summer of 1929, a crash is coming, there's a depression coming, would you do anything to prepare? Well, absolutely. So uh, the first thing that I've been doing is, uh, the very first thing I did was get out of debt, because God said to do that. And, uh, and I don't want to be on the wrong side of the wealth transfer because the Bible says the wealth will transfer from those who have borrowed and can't repay to those who show mercy and give. So I want to be on the showing mercy and give side. But God told me that in the next couple of years, there will be the greatest opportunity to purchase things for pennies on a dollar that, that we've ever seen since the 1930s. Yeah, you know, I've heard a phrase uh, from, actually, I remember the man that said it. He was a man that, uh, Dr. Larry Bates, and of course, he was saying invest in gold and silver. But he had, had a phrase that he said, in bad times, cash will be king. Right. I think that's what you're saying. That's exactly what I'm saying. Cash. In, so, so in other words, are you putting? So, you're not putting money in real estate. You're not putting money uh, in the stock market. Uh, you're not putting money even in businesses. You're putting money into guarantees, but you can't get much interest on guarantees. Uh, I mean, it's the lowest in history interest. You know what? I'm, I'm not trying to make money that way, Sid. I'm just trying to preserve capital because I'm absolutely convinced the stock market is going to go to a fraction of its present value. The real estate market will do the same. Many businesses will fail. So I'm preserving capital in cash right now. And here's the reason. And, and by the way, when I, when I say guarantee, I'm saying put it in a bank that has uh, guaranteed for, say, uh, if a husband and wife, $250,000, or put it in U.S. government bills 
So uh, what you're saying and what I'm hearing from very wise people in addition to you is it doesn't matter what your interest rate is. It matters whether you will preserve your money. Well, that's exactly right. And, uh, and if you preserve cash, then uh, what you said is true. When, uh, when this next leg down and the next phase of this jubilee comes, again, a lot of people are going to be blindsided, and there will be houses, businesses, all kinds of things available uh, for pennies on a dollar for those who have a little bit of extra money. That- yeah, yeah, no, I've been reading your supernatural principles that, uh, in fact, uh, let me make this available. He has a book. Five wealth secrets. Ninety percent of nine. Five wealth secrets. Ninety-six percent of us don't know. And then the eight. I mean, this is uh, these are how-to CDs. God's power to get wealth. And trust me, this is so balanced. You need every. You need it yourself immediately. But you want every young person that you love. To get a hold of this material, we're making it available for a gift of $45, and I promise you that on tomorrow's broadcast, we're going to be talking about giving in a way you've never heard before. Never. Call our order-only line, 1-800-447-2697, Before we went on the air, we were discussing a scripture in Matthew 6, and it's a scripture that uh, most people don't understand because a word is used in it they don't understand, and the word is mammon. What is that scripture? And explain to us what is mammon. Well, the scripture uh, said, it says, no one can serve two masters, for either he'll hate one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. And for years, I thought mammon was just another word for money. Uh, But uh, I began thinking... You know, in a lot of Bibles, they even say that in the notes. It does. It says money or riches or something like that. But uh, I thought, you know, logically, Jesus has set these two things up to be opposites. If you want to serve God, you should have nothing to do with mammon. And if you do have something to do with mammon, you're not serving God. So, So if it's money, that eliminates most of us. (laughs) if mammon is money. (laughs) It would mean that the correct course of action is to take a vow of poverty and have no money. And and by the way, a lot of people over the centuries have done that, the monks and others. That's exactly the reason they did that, is they thought that mammon meant money, and they were were godly people wanting to obey God. But uh, I thought, it can't mean money. What is it? And I never knew until I ran into a man named Ron Smith, who was the founder of the Biblical School of Studies of Youth with a Mission, who did a study on the origin of that word and discovered that it was a Canaanite word that didn't mean money, didn't mean wealth, didn't mean greed. It wasn't an attitude. It was actually a god that was worshipped in uh, Jesus' time by Canaanite people, just like Baal or Molech or Dagon. And uh, what I discovered, Sid, is that there's a demonic spirit behind every one of those idolatrous gods. And that spirit, mammon, is designed to capture people's hearts, cause people to focus on money, and cause people to have completely wrong motives in their handling of money and cause them to mishandle money. So Jesus goes on and he talks about provision, because everybody needs provision. Everybody needs food, clothing, shelter. All of us need those things, and God knows that. So how are we to get that? And Jesus said in verse 25, 
For this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat, what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is life not more than food and a body not more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air or the sparrows, and this is Jesus' picture of provision. As to uh, Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more of much more worth than they? And Sid, when I read that, I got a revelation because all my life I thought provision came only by me sowing and reaping. And here what Jesus said is, no, there's a purpose for sowing and reaping, but it's not that you might be, uh, the provision might be made for you. Jesus is saying, provision comes to you because my Father loves you by grace, by his love, the same way as it comes to a little child. I mean, if you think, how much time does a four-year-old spend worrying about whether he's going to have food? You know, in our country. I know there are other countries. They uh, and if you want to get even, even lower than that, uh, how much time does a sparrow sow and reap and worry? <laughs> none. And none, you know. So I've told people, have you ever seen a sparrow ha- having an anxiety attack? <laughs> well, the sparrows may be the only one following Jesus' advice. Worry for nothing. <laughs> Christians do that. They're, they're worried. And so the, I think Jesus' point is this. If you can get a revelation in your heart, my Father loves me, and because he loves me, he will take care of me more than birds. Now I can enter into sowing and reaping for right motives. And uh, what I found, Sid, is a lot of people, uh, they try to enter into sowing and reaping, and they're disappointed and hurt because the, I've had people say, well, it doesn't work. Well, the motive is, if you give money to a godly situation, you will get a hundred times back. And so the motive, sometimes I, I, I say to myself, is the motive getting a hundred times back, or is the motive expanding God's kingdom. What is the real motive? Right. So what I realized when what I found for myself and for most people, if I become secure in my heart in the fact that my father loves me, not because I do anything, just because I'm his son and he loves me and he will make provision, now I can begin to sow seed with a right motive for the purpose of expanding the kingdom of God, expecting large multiplications to come, not just so that I can increase my financial statement, but money only is, it's like a tool, it, or it is a tool, it's like a shovel. And uh, what good is it to have a shovel if you don't have a purpose to dig something? So money is only a tool. What is the purpose for this? So if I have a kingdom purpose, now I can enter into sowing and reaping for the purpose of multiplying, and, uh, and I could do it with the right motive. Whereas if I have never gotten a revelation of what I call sparrow faith, uh, and we talk about that in the, in the CD series uh, at length so that people can really get an understanding of that, because I've found it's not just a matter of going, oh, yeah, yeah, I know my father loves me, but it really is a revelation that needs to come to the heart. And if you don't have that, virtually everything you do is tainted because you're trying to manipulate God to get you money. And really, a lot of people, uh, I think what the spirit of mammon does is puts people in fear that they're not going to have enough. And then what happens is mammon becomes their master through fear, and God becomes their servant to get them money. And that's an, uh, that's an inverted relationship. It's almost like a, a slave-master relationship 
uh, and people are putting themselves in it and not even realizing it. That's exactly right. And, uh, and what I realized is God is meant to be my master. He directs me. Money is meant to be my servant. I direct it and command it what to do to serve the kingdom of God. I'm not looking to money, to, uh, and I'm not looking to the spirit of mammon so that I can be okay and then making God my servant to get me money. Instead, I want that to be reversed where I'm seeking God. God, what is your purpose for my life? What is, what is the vision you have for me? What is the purpose that you want me to pursue? And then uh, my, my goal is to be here to serve you, not to get you to serve me. And you know what I find most people do? I've got to make money do anything that's possible to provide for my family, to get financially independent, so then I can do ministry. There's something wrong with that picture. I hate my job. There's something wrong with that picture. Right, because uh, what God spoke to me, Sid, many years ago, is that I wasn't to work for money. I was to make money work for me, and that work was to be according to a vision, according to a calling, what God had called me to do, not just something to make money, uh, but that I could do something productive in the economy because God had called me to it, because I was gifted to work in that area. Uh, you know, something that really struck me as I uh, listened to your tapes and uh, read your book and just digested the material uh, is the word calling. What did it originally mean? Well, it's interesting. Calling is, is as, the, as the name would imply, something that comes from out your, outside of yourself, uh, that comes from God, something you're called to do. Uh, and a lot of people think calling means to be a pastor or an evangelist or a teacher. Well, it, could, it could mean that, but it could also mean a zillion other things. Well, as reality, in reality, it would be for everybody. Every one of us has, has a calling. So there are people who are called to be architects and people who are called to be truck drivers and people who are called to be homemakers. Every one of us has a calling from God. And it's interesting, we have, a uh, hundred years ago, I found that most parents prepared their children to fulfill a calling. Today, parents only prepare their children to have an occupation. And those are very different words. And occupation is something that occupies your time until you die. And, and I don't believe we're just called to occupy our time. We're called to fulfill a vision. Every one of us has a calling that we need to discover. And when we work in that calling, then I've found provision naturally follows vision. But if you don't have a vision, I mean, if you look at the word provision, it's two parts. Pro, which means for, and vision. So provision is that which comes for the vision. But if you have no vision, the Bible says you will perish. For without a vision, people perish. But if you have a vision and you're pursuing the vision, then provision comes to fulfill that. And that's when we enter into sowing and reaping and giving for the purpose of fulfilling the vision that God has given to us. And a supernatural multiplication then comes back. And I've seen that happen, Sid, in many, many people's lives. And we talk about that in the CD series, many examples of people that when they understood their calling and their vision and began to sow seed for the purpose of multiplication to fulfill a calling and vision, they saw many, many fold multiplication come into their life. And so there's a principle there of pursuing vision, not pursuing provision. Craig, uh, you start out uh, with the first wealth secret, 
and you start out with a Jewish family. Why do you start out with a Jewish family? You know what I found, uh, Sid, is that Jewish people many times don't understand a lot, uh, or, or many I've met don't understand a lot about biblical principles, but they just naturally do them. What I found is Christian families many times study all kinds of principles and don't do them. And I thought, wouldn't it be wonderful if we did both, studied and did? But uh, Jewish families tend to uh, teach their children from one generation to the next principles that work, that cause them to prosper. Well, well you know, as I've read your five wealth secrets, I found that before I was even a believer, these were intuitive things that I believe I got from generations back that did follow the scriptures. I think that's true. I, I started the book out just with a little story about a father talking with his son, and the son is 10 years old, and the father's going to begin to give him an allowance. And so the father says to the son, son, I'm going to give you uh, $10 a week, and uh, you get to do whatever you want with it, but let me teach you a principle first before we start this. Son, it says in Proverbs 22, verse 7, the borrower is slave to the lender, and the rich rules over the poor. Now I want to ask you this question. Would you like to be a master or a slave, rich or poor? The son thinks about it. Gee, that's tough, Dad. Let me think a little <laughs> hmm. I think I choose rich and master. And uh, the dad says, good choice, son. Here's your $10. What do you want to do with it? The son says, well, I've got a list. And he's got a list of all kinds of things he wants to buy. And the dad says, you know what, son? You just qualified yourself to be poor. Son, let me give you a definition of a poor person. A poor person is one who spends 100% of the money he makes. A poor person is one who doesn't ever allocate his money for anything other than spending. He said, son, let me tell you what rich people do. Rich people divide their money into categories, and here's what they do. They tithe first. They give second. They save third. They invest fourth, and they spend what's left. Do you know what poor people do, son? They spend first, and then they try to tithe, give, save, and invest. And how much is left for those latter four? And the answer is nothing or close to nothing. So, son, we're not going to do that. I want to teach you from uh, an early age. We're going to get five jars. We're gonna g I'm going to give you $10 bills instead of uh, $10, and here's what we're going to do. The first one goes in the tithe jar. Now, that isn't even your money. That's just you managing money that belongs to someone else. This is actually God's money, and you're just an escrow agent. You're just a manager of this, and your only job is to take that jar and deliver it to the storehouse. Oh, okay, so let me see if I have this straight. It, you, you have $10 bills, right? and you have uh, how many jars? Five jars. Five jars. So you, the, the, the first jar, you put $1 in which just happens to be a tithe, and tell me what that is for? That is, that is to learn how to manage something that doesn't belong to you, because Yeshua said in, Matthew pardon me, in Luke chapter 16, if you never learn to, to manage that which belongs to another, who will ever give you that which is your own? So the tithe is simply God's opportunity for you to learn how to manage something that doesn't belong to you. The tithe is not you giving 10% of your money to God. The tithe is you managing God's money, learning how to manage something that belongs to another, like you would if you were an escrow agent. 
when uh, somebody puts money in your in the account of an escrow agent, it's not their money. They're just a manager, and their only uh, job is to deliver that money to the house closing, for example, if it's an escrow for a house. So the tithe, I believe, is just God's opportunity he makes available to everybody to learn how to manage money that doesn't belong to them. So uh, this father says that, son, that's the first jar. The second jar, we're going to take another dollar, and we're going to put it in the offering jar. And uh, that is to give to ministries. That's to give to vision that you have, things that you want to support, poor people, uh, disadvantaged people, people that have experienced tragedy. That's offerings. And then we're going to put $1 in that. And then, son, in the third jar, we're going to put another dollar, and that's saving for larger purchases you may want to make later. And the fourth jar, son, we're going to put $2 in that. That's for investment. And the fifth jar is for spending. And you get to spend that on whatever you want. So the little boy says, okay, Dad, I understand the Lord's tithe. I understand offerings. I understand saving. I for sure understand spending. But what on earth is investing? And the dad says, son, have you got any uh, Gentile kids at your school? He says, well, sure. Uh, There's only two of us that are Jewish. Everybody else is Gentiles. He said, well, son, here's what will happen. Most of the Gentile kids at your school, they'll get the same allowance or maybe even more than I give you, but their dad won't give them this teaching. So here's what they'll do. They'll put all their money in their pocket, and they'll do exactly what you were going to do. They'll spend it. And then Friday will come, and they'll desperately remember something they want to do over the weekend and not have the money, and they'll want to borrow it. And son, here's what you can do. Lend them the money. Now, don't even set an interest rate. Let them set it. Let them tell you what they'll give you. So sure enough, Friday comes, and Billy is is running around school saying, could anybody lend me $2? Because there's a movie opening I desperately want to see over the weekend. And so... Uh, uh, so little Isaac says, sure, I got $2. Billy says, if you'd lend me the $2 today, I'd give you back $4 on Monday. And Isaac says, you're kidding. You give me 100% interest for three days? Why would you do that? He said, well, because I need the money so bad. Well, okay. Monday comes, $4 comes back. And uh, guess what? Word gets out. Now he has another $2 from his dad. So Friday comes, he lends out $6 to uh, another two of uh, Billy's friends. And uh, Monday comes, $12 comes back, plus two from his dad. He's got 14 He lends out $14. The next week, $28 comes back. He's got another two from his dad, lends out the $30. 60 comes back, plus two. And this continues on through high school. At the end of high school, Isaac buys his first house for cash. Now, what did Billy, Bobby, and Sammy learn? They learned how to borrow every single week. And in the senior year of high school, a credit card offer came to their house, and they convinced each of them convinced their dad to co-sign, and they each graduate from high school with a $2,500 credit card debt. Isaac graduates from high school with a lot of cash, which he uses to buy his first house for cash. Isaac continues on through his 20s and 30s, and Isaac ends up uh, being a major stockholder in a bank. Billy, Bobby, and Sammy, of course, never learn these principles. All they know to do is borrow and spend because they put all their money in one jar and spend it all. And uh, so uh, they borrow money from the bank that uh, Isaac owns. And then, of course, when the wealth transfer comes and uh, the jubilee cycle comes and shaking comes because they have borrowed and cannot repay, they end up losing their houses, which return back to the bank that Isaac owns. And Isaac ends up being a giver, being able to uh, have a little bit of extra cash uh, to purchase things during that uh, wealth transfer. And uh, 
And so the first thing that I learned, the very first principle, Sid, is most people spend first and then they try to tithe or give. And and they never invest in anything. If you spend first, you'll never be able to give. Uh, and, and you know what I've noticed as a truth throughout life? You keep getting more money, pay increases, as life goes on. But whatever your pay increase, you end up spending that amount that year. Well, that's exactly right. And if you ask most people, what's your financial problem? Do you know what they'll tell you? I don't make enough money. And uh, all the expenses are too high. Somebody that tells you that for sure just desperately needs to read this Five Well Secrets book. It'll help them. Uh, you know what? Another thought that's crossing my mind, and I haven't discussed this with you, but America is doing everything opposite of what they're supposed to do uh, from even these five wealth secrets in your book. Right. And we're, we're trying to help all the other people, the, the 96 percent that are doing it wrong, and we just can't keep doing that. And it, yes, we want to help them, but we can't help them. What if the church taught these wealth principles to every member of their congregation and the church took care of the needs of the people in their congregation? Then the government wouldn't have to have welfare, and then our country could even be solvent. That, well, I think that's exactly right. And if you look back in Scripture, an interesting thing, Sid, when it came time to build a building in ancient Israel, how did they do that? Well, they didn't go to the bank and take out a loan. They asked for offerings. Interesting, they didn't even touch the tithe. They asked for offerings. How much did they get? So much that uh, they had to say, take some back. It's too much. When was that, the last time that happened in any, anybody's congregation? Well, well I believe that as churches get, uh, I, I hate to put it this way, but kingdom mentality versus survival mentality. Uh, oh, I'm gonna, I better not preach something because I'll lose a few tithers from my congregation. If, if the churches were kingdom mentality, if the individual Christians were kingdom mentality at these wealth transfers, they'd become the wealthiest people in the world. And the wealth transfer is going to be this coming year. Yeah, that's exactly right. You know, and it's interesting if you look at why was Israel able to do that? Why could they build a whole building just out of offerings? Very simple. Nobody was in debt. Everybody had only one master, God Almighty. Nobody had to report to MasterCard, their finance company, their mortgage company, their car finance company. See, all so, so, in effect, they weren't serving mammon, which happens to be another god. Well, our time is out. Craig Hill was sharing what sounded like a good Jewish family. And the principles that were passed on from generation to generation. And, uh, you know, Craig, one of the things I was thinking about when you were sharing that is in my family, we helped our relatives. We even helped distant cousins that lost everything because of the Holocaust. We helped them come to the United States. We helped them get settled. And we didn't even realize that because we were helping them, God was then blessing us. And do you know what my parents were able to do? They were to, able to leave money to my sister and myself and still live comfortably and still 
giving was one of their major things in life, but it, was, it wasn't giving to get. That wasn't their motivation. It, it was giving because you're supposed to help your family. That's such a powerful principle, Sid, and now that, that really is the, fi- the fifth principle that we're talking about in that five wealth secrets is uh, the second part of Proverbs 13.22 says, a good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. We normally think of just leaving an inheritance to our children would be the farthest, but it says two generations, and God gave us a very specific strategy of how to create a, uh, how, how to do something financially so that our children would never have to borrow money for a house, would never have to enter into the debt system, and to set up a perpetual fund so that our grandchildren, great-grandchildren would never never have to do that. So that uh, Well, you know, in my family, without even knowing these biblical principles, my parents gave me money to buy my first house. I gave my children money to buy their first house. Why did I do it? Because it was biblical? No, I didn't even know the Bible. The reason that I did it was because my parents did it. Why did my parents do it? it got, but it went all the way back to the Bible. Exactly. And if we're grafted in, that's what we should be grafted into in Messiah. Those are principles that come from eternity. Those are not just Jewish things. Those are things from God that I believe we need to grab hold of. You know, my, I saw my father experience an amazing thing uh, as he began to understand principles in the kingdom of God. He met the Lord when he was uh, uh, in 1973, and uh, he had been a petroleum geologist all of his life. That's what he did for a living. But he was so zealous for the Lord when he first met him. He said, you know, I just want to give everything I have to Jesus. I don't want to be a manager of my business anymore. I want to be a steward. Uh, I want to be a, uh, or I don't want to be an owner. I want to be a manager. And uh, so he went to his attorneys and he said, you know, what I would like to do, I think the most valuable thing that I have is some overriding royalty on gas production that came from some deals uh, that he had made back earlier, five, ten years earlier. And there was very little income coming from that at that time, but he believed that one day it would be valuable. So he went to his attorneys and he said, I don't want to even have this in my own name. If you go down to the county courthouse, these royalties are listed in my name. I want them to actually be listed in the name of Jesus Christ. How would I do that? (laughs) And the attorney says, I don't know. Nobody ever asked me that before. (laughs) He said, well, I really want to do that, because that's what being a steward means to me, is I want it out of my own name. I want it in the name of the Lord. And so the attorney came back and said, well, uh, we think we found a way that you could do that. If you will commit that royalty into an irrevocable trust, uh, you can never take it back into your own name, and you can only use it for uh, the purposes designated, the ministry purposes in the trust, and uh, that sort of thing, then then we could title it in the name of Jesus Christ, who is an absent party, physically absent, but to be managed by trustees. He said, yes, that's what I want to do. And uh, he and my mom prayed, and they felt like they were to keep 4% of that royalty to put in my mom's name uh, for their future living. Now, what was amazing, Sid, is that 100% of that royalty was uh, not anywhere near enough to live on at that time. And they felt like God told them just to to keep 4% in my mom's name, and that would be enough for their living expenses. And uh, so... uh, and they gave a couple percent to business partners, and they gave one percent to each of their children. 
And uh, the day, it was in 1976, the day that they, uh, my dad lit, uh, physically signed those trust agreements, something supernatural was released in the spirit. And uh, that the next day, the two operating uh, companies, the companies that operated those uh, gas fields, called up and said, you know, prices of gas has risen and we have some new technology available. And I just thought as uh, the owner of royalty out there, you'd be interested to know that we're going to embark on an intensive drilling program next summer. And uh, he, my dad said, well, isn't that interesting that you would call me today, which is the day after I actually legally signed those assets out of my name, and I'm no longer an owner. I'm now just a manager. And uh, what happened over the next couple of years, uh, in just two short years, that uh, the, the cash flow from those royalties multiplied more than a thousand times, not a thousand percent, but a thousand times. And uh, we saw just a supernatural increase in an ability for my dad to uh, do many, many things in vision, uh, in, in ministry that God had given, given him vision for. And, uh, and so we saw a principle that uh, when people will stop looking, you know what I found, Sid, is people are paralyzed by the spirit of mammon and by the devil because they constantly focus on what they don't have and what they can't do. Well, I can't do this. I don't have that. And you know what's interesting in multiplication is when God comes to multiply, he can't multiply what you don't have. He can only multiply what you oh, oh, okay. But there are people listening to us, and they say, I don't have these, uh, uh, these gas leases to even give to Jesus. I don't have nothing. Uh, what would you say to them? And I think that's exactly the point, is that, you know, what's interesting in multiplication, it's an equation. You have, uh, uh, God comes and applies a multiplication factor, uh, and it could, you know, God's multiplication is supernatural. It could be ten times, a hundred times, a thousand times, a million times. Here's the problem. A million times zero is still what? Zero. Right. And uh, if you just had one then multiplication can happen. And uh, what I would say is stop looking at what you don't have and start looking at what you do have. All right, all right. you have an example in your material that is I, priceless. I, Very quickly, tell me that. That example was this. I had a man that I was counseling many years ago, and he was destitute. And, you know, nothing was working in his life. He was living in somebody's basement. He had no job. He'd lost everything. Uh, he had no money, and uh, when we got to the end of the counseling time, I, uh, our ministry was supported by offerings. And God had taught me uh, that I was to re uh, ask for an offering at the end of each time, not because we needed the money, but many times because people needed to give. So I said to this man, let's pray and ask God what you're to give. And he said what you just said, well, I don't have anything. And uh, I felt the Spirit of God rise up in me, and uh, I, I just boldly said, I don't believe that. Show me your wallet. He showed me his wallet, and there was absolutely nothing in it. No cards, no money, no coins. And uh, he said, see, I've got nothing. I said, empty your pockets. I don't believe you. And out fell two coins, two quarters. He had 50 cents. I said, I knew it. I knew it. I knew you had something. And he looked with terror in his eyes, and he said, no, it's January. We're here in Denver, Colorado. It's snowing outside. I live 16 miles away, and it's gonna, it takes 50 cents for me to get home on a bus. It doesn't take 45 cents or 40 cents. It takes 50, and that's all I have. And uh, he says, so I can't give anything. I said, oh, yes, you can. I said, brother, you are a candidate for a miracle. God is going to get you home supernaturally. 
And uh, he was angry, but uh, to make a long story short, he gave a nickel. That's what he he felt like he could give. And so uh, he gave five cents, went out with 45 cents, muttering and saying, now I'm going to have to walk home. Well, when he got out by the bus stop, there was a five-cent piece. There was a nickel just poking its head out of the out of the snow, leaning up against the bus stop sign. He picked it up and didn't even acknowledge it was God. He thought, boy, that sure is lucky. And halfway on the way home, he, it suddenly hit him. God, you did that. You know my life. Lord, you know me. And uh, he came back the next week with a story. He said, uh, he told me that, and he said, when I got home, there was a $5 check in the mail that was unexpected. And uh, he said, I, I directly correlate that with the five cents that I gave. He says, I'm so excited. He says, I want to pray over the offering right now before we even start. I got $2. <laughs> so we prayed over it, and uh, and God continued to multiply. And I believe the reason was not because uh, he was giving to get, but what happened is he broke the power of the spirit of mammon. There was a stronghold on the inside that that spirit had uh, had set up that caused him to trust in money instead of in God. And so what happened in this man's life, God began to multiply and increase. The next thing you know, he came back and told me, I now have an apartment that I live in. I've moved out of my friend's basement. Shortly, uh, actually just before that, he got a job, and God began to prosper him, and his whole life began to work. And he came each week with more and more money to be able to give, and he became a giver once he broke that spirit of mammon, and everything changed in his life. Multiplication came to him. And you know what's so wonderful about the people, they get your material, the book, Five Wealth Secrets, 96% of us don't know, and the eight CDs, God's Power to Get Wealth. First of all, they're going to break off the poverty mindset that has been causing them problems. Next, they're going to walk into the supernatural, miraculous increase of, of God to get rid of debt and to have money for the great wealth transfer. Uh, and I, I'm, the principles you teach in the, your eight CDs of God's power to get wealth, everyone needs this and they need to teach it to their children and their grandchildren. We're making this all available for a gift of $45. To hear this week's interview or watch archives of our television show, It's Supernatural, visit our website at www.sidroth.org. That's www.sidroth.org. To receive a complimentary copy of our bi-monthly teaching newsletter, materials catalog, or information about becoming Mishpucha or Chalitzim, write to me, Sid Roth, Post Office Box 39222, Charlotte, North Carolina, 28278. To place a credit card order, call anytime, 1-800-447-2697. For all other calls, the number is 704-943-6500. That's 704-943-6500. For a CD of this week's broadcast, send a donation to Sid Roth. That's S-I-D-R-O-T-H, Post Office Box 39222, Charlotte, North Carolina, 28278.